0: Hello and welcome to this October edition of The Crit. My name is Ollie Stratford, I'm one of your hosts.
1: And my name's India Block, I'm your other host.
0: I'm very excited about this episode because October is the spookiest month. It's Halloween, it's Satan's month.
1: Yes, I'm so glad that I've brought um, the spooky season into the Disegno lexicon.
0: You know, it's a real shame, though, because th- there aren't all that many design projects which play around with sort of ghosts and ghouls and things like that. In fact, the only one I know of is a project from 2015 by Felipe Ribon, a Paris-based designer who did an exhibition in Bordeaux called Corsetil, And it was all about spiritualism and design tools to contact the dead. It was terrific.
1: Yeah, I think it's a missed opportunity. Although I have to say, I think the standout design of the century for me is the Home Depot 12 foot skeleton, um, which is back for a second year running. And this year, uh, they've introduced a terrifying pumpkin skeleton, which is some sort of monstrous squash bone hybrid, which includes a kind of glowing um, carved out face. Uh, So yeah, it makes me very sad that I'm one not in America to purchase uh, a 12 foot skeleton for my front garden. And also glad that despite the global shipping shortage, um, that they have managed to get these skeletons on the shop shelves.
0: Well, we should press on with our stories for the day because we also have an extended interview this episode with Kat Debo, the chief curator and director of MOMU, the fashion museum in Antwerp. So we'll be hearing about that a little bit later. But in the interim, on with the show.
1: Well, to kick things off, I guess we should discuss the event that uh, we've been waiting an entire year for. The confusingly named Dubai World Expo 2020, which is happening in 2021, but they have kept the name for branding purposes.
0: Do you know why, why they don't just change it to 2021? Because the same happened with the Euros in football. And it's very strange just insisting it's the same. Wouldn't it be easier and more convenient just to shift it?
1: I mean, cynically, these these events are a gigantic branding exercise, both for the host country and for every country that attends. So I think maintaining the brand is, uh, is quite significant.
0: So give us a rundown of what Dubai 2020 is then for those who don't know.
1: So Dubai 2020 is the latest edition of the World Exposition, also called the World Fair. They began in 1791 in Prague. Oh, is it that
0: early? I always thought it was a 19th century thing with the sort of great exhibition and things like that. I had no idea they were quite so stretched quite so far back in time.
1: I think things really kicked off after the Industrial Revolution. But yes, countries have been gathering together to show off their manufacturing prowess for quite some time. So this year it's being held in Dubai and they are, I believe, over 190 countries in attendance. So Dubai's hosting and everyone else turns up and brings their own pavilion full of all their latest... Kind of gadgets, technology, exciting new materials. It's meant to be a kind of exchange of knowledge and culture. It's going to be running from the 1st of October through to March in 2022.
0: So these things typically have a theme, don't they? And it's normally quite a vague theme like hope or clean water actually no clean water is quite specific clean water would be pretty good hope or optimism or your future my future our future what's the theme for um Dubai 2020
1: okay so there's a theme and then there's three sub themes (laughs) okay um (laughs) so you're pretty close with the overarching theme which is connecting minds creating the future
0: okay yeah that seems suitably woolly
1: well yeah I guess it does what it it says on the tin people are going to visit and connect minds and then the idea is together we're all going to create a better future so the three sub themes which are also the kind of themes of the three different districts of the fair are mobility opportunity and sustainability
0: and so when you mention the districts of the fair the kind of there's a little city which grows up around the expo right dubai has built this special area in which the fair is taking place and this is this is a pretty big thing it has an estimated 18 billion budget putting this event together and to build all of that infrastructure is is really something.
1: Yeah, it's located on a 438 hectare site in the desert between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So it's pretty massive. Um, I believe Hock, the architecture studio, did the master plan. And the site itself is based around this giant plaza. And then you've got the three districts coming out. And then you've got the all the hospitality ring around that outside. And they're expecting you know millions of visitors to come through over the next 6 months
0: so i mean it's something a bit like the olympics or the world cup right you build all of this infrastructure hold a huge event and it's kind of an exercise in soft power right it it shows off Dubai as a place where progressive ideas are being had and the world is coming together to solve some of those big issues. What's the kind of reception to this sort of event? I was looking around. I was expecting this to be in all of the papers. It's a huge global event which has been slightly delayed and is now finally happening. But there's very little coverage out there. None of the major newspapers seem to be touching it in particular. The only thing I can see is a couple of design websites running stories about the architecture of some of the pavilions.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is the World Cup for design nerds. Um, And there's some big names that are perhaps a draw, I think, for the architecture and design press. So Foster and Partners is doing the Mobility Pavilion and the Sustainability Pavilion is called Terra and that's by Grimshaw. That's had quite a bit of attention because it's kind of got 6,000 square meters of these very fancy next generation solar panels. You know, there's a few things that have been long awaited on the design front. I'm interested, I don't know whether the, the national press is avoiding it because they don't think there's an audience for it currently or because the UAE is kind of persona non grata in terms of human rights issues i believe the european parliament kind of handed down a ruling that it didn't really want its member countries to participate because they felt that their human rights abuses recently had been too too great to ignore
0: yeah i saw that they've specifically called for member states to boycott the event um and that's down to political activists and dissidents being imprisoned in the uae
1: and Human Rights Watch has not called for a boycott, but they've asked uh, those who have been involved to use this platform to raise awareness about the situation.
0: The thing I find very strange, and this isn't specific to Dubai 2020, but about these world expos in general, they're billed as these sort of uh, future events, creating a new world and an exciting um, exciting different ways of operating and that's all well and good you see a couple of nice pavilions and interesting things like that but they also strike me as hugely wasteful they involve millions of people flying around the world to attend them which sustainability wise isn't great the creation of all of this infrastructure which afterwards a lot of the pavilions are just scrapped or some of the permanent infrastructure goes to waste that doesn't strike me as a very progressive way of looking at the future. I mean, if it dates from the 18th century originally, I wonder how that squares now with a world in which we know we need to reduce flights, we know we shouldn't just be building things for the sake of it. And I think it's very easy to interpret these types of things as slight vanity projects on the part of countries.
1: I think I'd agree that you don't need to rely on those shock and awe tactics when we have you know, a visual culture that can spread so fast over the internet and we don't really perhaps need just a select few to actually go and see it in person.
0: I mean, I've seen one or two bits from it that I think are interesting. So the solar designer, Mayan van Albel, I know created solar panels for the roof of the Dutch Pavilion. I think she's a really exciting practitioner and they look very beautiful and her research is deeply engaged and worthwhile. I also quite like the sort of entrance gateways that Asif Khan has made, which are very beautiful. They're carbon fibre structures. They were called the Mashrabaya, within Islamic architecture, and I think they're very nice. I just have this sneaking suspicion that throughout all world fairs of this kind, they're sort of based on this techno- utopianism that new technologies are going to solve all of the world's problems they'll fix the climate they'll lead to a more equitable society we just need to wait until the technology reaches a set period or there'll be some exciting breakthrough that a designer from a distant country has made which will cure everything and i just don't believe that's true So one of the stories which really caught my eye this month was the Balenciaga Spring-Summer 2022 show. Now, Balenciaga in recent years, I think, have done some really innovative things around the idea of the fashion show, which is a very tried and trusted format, but arguably creaks a little bit and has some issues around it. So during the pandemic, they made a video game, for instance, to display their collection, and it felt very fresh and exciting. And they've continued with that, after the pandemic, so Paris Design Week this year is the first time that physical shows have really been possible again. But Balenciaga has sort of stuck to this strategy of trying to do things a little bit differently. So what they did this year was they invited guests to a red carpet event. And it was a mixture of fashion editors and members of the studio and celebrities walking up and down this red carpet. And then you go into the Théâtre du Châtelet, which is a Haussmann era opera house. And as they sat down, guests realised that that red carpet was being streamed. And actually, the red carpet was the catwalk, so people were wearing elements of the new collection. So quite this sort of meta, strange thing going on, which I think is quite exciting. And then the second part of the presentation was that Balenciaga had partnered with The Simpsons, and they showed a special 10-minute episode of The Simpsons in which all of the cast of Springfield travel out to Paris to walk the runway in a Balenciaga show.
1: I just think this is the cleverest um, collaboration ever. Just no-no, it's brilliant. I love Marge getting to wear a beautiful dress. I think that's a great callback to Marge and her Chanel um, suit dress, which was an iconic episode. I think super smart in this day and age where catwalk pictures just, they're ephemeral, they vanish. Uh, Even, you know, red carpet pictures don't tend to hang around that long. Street style images can sometimes um, go a bit viral. But To really grab people's attention, you either have to do a really silly stunt or in this case, just so smart because The Simpsons is such a cultural touchpoint. And I think all of the memes, the GIFs, um, the Instagram accounts dedicated to various aesthetic niches of documenting The Simpsons. They just have this kind of visual half-life that's so much longer than your standard fashion show. I just think such a smart move. And also... Very funny and clearly done in a loving uh, and knowing way.
0: Yeah, I think it was very impressive. And I think Balenciaga at the moment really are ahead of quite a lot of the other traditional houses in the way they're thinking about fashion and presenting it. Because there's something so nice about the way that this short connects both very high culture and low culture. So the clothes look fantastic in it, and I think the animators have spoken quite a lot about how difficult that was, actually, to make sure that the clothes... Uh, you do justice to them in the animation that you get the textures right and they look gorgeous. That's very impressive. But then it's allied with this sort of joyful pop culture-ness, the sort of silliness of it. You have Wayland Smithers in a dress. You have um, the twins from Bart's school wearing the clothes, Lisa. And it's a really lovely side because I think fashion, it you know, this it's a stereotype but I think there's some truth to it. it often does get sealed up in its own sort of exclusive world and it can seem very unwelcoming and can seem very shut off from other areas of culture whereas of course fashion has a massive impact it percolates down what goes on in the runways has a really big influence on street culture and pop culture and all of this and I think what's very nice about presenting it in this light and tongue in cheek and silly Simpsons episode is it embraces all of that. You know, it says fashion can be extreme craft and super beautiful and sort of an art in its own right. And that's also fine with it being trashy and enjoyable and accessible. And I think they've done a really, really good job of that because the catwalk is such um such a sealed off little world and anything you can do to open it out and let more people in is to be commended.
1: I think one of my favourite anecdotes is that Anna Winter, who uh, features in the front row, was a bit of a fun sponge about it all. Apparently there was meant to be a moment where she was putting out Homer Simpson's um, flaming jacket with a glass of champagne and she specially asked not to be included in that moment.
0: But, I mean, credit to Damna Vasalia, who's the creative director of Balenciaga. I think it's really exciting the way he's presenting fashion at the moment. And I think some other houses could could take some cues from this and they can have more fun with that format and opening things up and embracing some of these different ways of speaking about fashion and letting people into fashion. They don't have to take away from the craft and artistry that also plays a part in it. I think it's it's a fantastic initiative and really do commend them for it.
1: I do have one gripe, though. Oh, I'm sorry. Hit me. To be a fun sponge myself. Okay, so as you said, they took a tremendous amount of care recreating the clothes in cartoon format, which is really hard because the Simpsons, everyone's kind of got exaggerated body shapes and to try and maintain the integrity of the clothes was a great challenge. But the accompanying fashion that Balenciaga has produced, I think is a bit dull. There's a lot of T-shirts and hoodies. It's four hundred and ninety-five pounds for a T-shirt with a cartoon of Homer Simpson and Marge Simpson wearing some cool fashion clothes. It's one hundred and ninety-five pounds for a keyring. I just think they could have done something more exciting because I saw, you know, Balenciaga do like the wackiest shoes. They've got this brilliant pair of like faux sheering blue pool slides on a heel, and I thought that was part of the collection, and it was a kind of take on Marge Simpson's hair. But actually, it was a completely different collection. They've just done like some tie-in T-shirts that are obscenely expensive. And speaking of uh, brand tie-ins, I think, Ollie, you found another combination of two classics for us to, to discuss.
0: I did. This is the news that the sportswear brand Reebok has partnered with Eames Office, the design studio founded by Charles and Ray Eames to pull out a new range of trainers. And the idea is that the trainers feature sort of design elements taken from the Eames archives or particularly patterns and prints developed by Ray Eames. So there are four of these trainers and they're built on the Club C Reebok shoe. But I mean, it's a merchandising tie-in. It's a set of trainers with a little bit of Eames design thrown in to help themselves.
1: Yeah I mean I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand you know I don't think it's uh, exactly breaking the mold. Um, I think I actually probably preferred the Eames Uniqlo combo that came out in 2017 just because I'm more of a printed shirt kind of gal. Sneakers I think they're a big deal but they're kind of like art in or cryptocurrency in that they They gain this kind of value that's entirely unrelated to their use, which I think kind of goes against the Eames ethos. You know, they've made a special version that's only available to friends and family, which includes a colourful logo. And you just kind of wonder how many of those are going to end up on the black market. But I do really like the shoebox. That's my favourite part. Have you seen it?
0: Yeah, it's was the shoebox which is based on the design of the Eames house, isn't it? Which is the building which they designed out in California.
1: Yeah, and I thought that was a really sweet detail.
0: Yeah, it's a strange one. So, I mean... All licensing around the Eames is handled by Eames Office, which is now run by the third generation of the Eames family. And they work with a number of brands, Mahara, MoMA Store, Ravensburger, and like you say, in the past they've worked with Uniqlo. Now... That Eames office, they describe their work as dedicated to communicating, preserving and extending the work of Charles and Ray Eames. And they put quite a lot of emphasis on that extending. So what are new projects that they can become involved in and share aspects of the Eames work that potentially opens their history up to new audiences? Now, on the one hand, I think that's okay because people outside of design may not know the Eames although I suspect they will have seen some of their chairs and so on. And anything that welcomes people into their body of work, which is amazing and stands compare and stands comparison to any other 20th century designer is welcome. And the Eames were certainly savvy marketers in their own rights. I mean, they worked in so many different fields, film, multimedia, exhibitions, And they took a number of publicity shots which were extremely playful and played on their relationship. They were good at putting themselves out there, I think. They were quite savvy. But it also does feel a little bit tricky, doesn't it? It feels a shame to have designers who thought so deeply about what design was and could do reduced to a sort of pattern stuck on a product stuck on an unrelated product. I I feel very conflicted about it, I have to say.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It doesn't feel exploitative in that it's not against their original ethos of bringing um, good design to a mass market. And I think it's, you know, it is one of those problems that, uh, you know, an Eames chair is going to set you back. You know, you're not going to get much change out of a grand, basically. So it's a way of um, kind of purchasing part of the Eames history, I guess. But then also on the other hand, trainers either go in a box on a shelf or maybe I'm very hard on my shoes, but I don't tend to get more than a couple of years wear out of a shoe. I think it's perhaps one of the more wasteful sides of the fashion industry. Yeah, I don't know. And they haven't really redesigned the shoe per se. They've done some nice touches with the logo and the sole and the kind of Eames groovy star I guess I'd call it that very lovely kind of mid-century shape that they're known for that sits on the on the tongue I think it's been done sensitively and it hasn't been stuck on but also I don't think it's it's not revolutionary in terms of shoe design whereas the Eameses were revolutionaries in terms of their designs.
0: I think that's my problem with it to an extent because this happens, let's face it, to all major designers and artists. After they die, the estate continues and elements of their work are licensed out and they do appear on products you get mugs you get table mats all of those sorts of things alexander girard for instance a contemporary another great designer from that period a lot of his work is now available in the form of sort of accessories like that but i think like you i just have that feeling of Great, maybe these shoes will provide a gateway for some people to discover their work, but they also present a very limited portrayal of the Eames, which is quite demanding because it's a shoe, what am I expecting? It's hardly going to exist as like a treatise on the Eames and their design. Nice to see the Eames as it always is, and nice to see their legacy carrying on and that they still are so resonant in people's minds, but... Is this a good encapsulation of what the EAMs were all about and what their design was? Uh, that I'm less sure about.
1: Alrighty, time for our products and projects section. We've got a, you know, a, a classic product. We've got a lamp, we've got a project, an exciting socially-minded architecture project, and we've got a video game, which I'm really excited to hear about.
0: Where are we starting?
1: I think we're going to start traditional and then move through to the the more wild card.
0: Tell me about this lamp. Let me know what's going on with it.
1: So we have the I Know Lamp by Stefan Dietz for Midgard. Oh, OK. So I know
0: Midgard a little bit. That's a German lighting brand with an amazing history. I think it was founded back in... 1919 by an engineer, and uh, a lot of its lamps were in the Bauhaus. Actually, they were used in the workshops. They provided sort of adjustable light sources. Um, I think it then became state-owned during the division of Germany. But it, it's recently back in private hands, right? It's been under new ownership for the last few years.
1: And this is the first new light they've brought out since 1950. So it's a pretty big deal. Interesting that you mentioned uh, adjustable, because Dietz has harked back to that particular element. This is an adjustable lamp. It comes in two sizes. Hard to describe on a podcast, a famously non-visual medium. But it's a a fibreglass rod that's attached to a base with a conical lamp at the top end. And then the cable that runs through to the lamp also serves as a tension pull. So it's attached to two rings and you pull on the bottom of the cable and you can adjust the lamp into this beautiful bow of an arc.
0: So is that rod carbon fibre or something like that then,
1: flexible? It's fibreglass and actually part of um, Dietz's drive towards sustainability with this design is to use the minimum amount of materials and the minimum different types so there's only three main materials there's the fiberglass for this rod which gives it that kind of flexibility and strength there's steel and then there's abs pc which i assume is some sort of plastic it is yeah idea is that uh these are very hard wearing materials so it's not going to need repair and if it does need to be repaired or changed then these are quite like easy to get hold of materials Uh, you don't need any specialist tools to maintain this lamp
0: That's really nice. And I should say, I know Stefan's work quite well. He's a really significant designer. He's done some great things. And recently, he's become very interested in circular design. So I believe on his website, he actually lists a number of principles. I think he's done 10 principles in that kind of Dieter Rams style of what is good design, setting out how he thinks designers should be working today more sustainably and more circularly, And a lot of What you've talked about here seem to feed into that. So minimising the number of materials you're using, making sure that individual elements are easily replaceable or repairable. He did a good sofa not so long ago for Magis called Costume, where you can disassemble it into its separate components and easily replace them if one part of the sofa has worn out, but another bit is still fine. So I think it's great that he's using his position and working with companies to push this slightly more responsible style of design and and exciting to see him do that with something of the sleeping giant in midgard now india you promised us a socially responsible architecture project what's all that about
1: i did this is a project that's pretty close to my heart um because it's in somerset which is where i've been living at the moment not famously a hip-hop happening place especially in terms of um of design this is a project in Watchit, which is a town that is perched on the coast. You know, up until now, its claims to fame have been Coleridge. It's where he was living when he wrote his famous rhyme of the ancient mariner.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, it's not a bad claim to fame. It's not
1: a bad claim to fame. It's a bit of a depressing poem. But then Coleridge also went off the rails after he left Watchit and the surrounding coastal area. So make of that what you will. Watch It itself is uh, also having a kind of sad and slow decline. It's now one of the least socially mobile places in the UK. It had a paper mill which sadly shut down in 2015 and this caused real uh, devastation both economically and socially and emotionally when you lose that kind of thing that brings a town together. And The Onion Collective is a group of women who... We've all kind of ended up in the town for different reasons and felt that the potential of this of this place was really being squandered, and so they've been working for years to bring kind of arts and culture. They eventually managed to um procure a location down on the quay. They have found an architect, Piers Taylor, who's kind of known for his um kind of socially and environmentally engaged projects. They managed to raise a lot of funding and they've built this gorgeous kind of self-contained amalgamation. It looks like all these kind of higgledy-piggledy steel boxes and crow's nests and lighthouses.
0: Oh, so it's a little bit maritime in its in its architecture then.
1: Yeah, it's um, a little bit maritime, a little bit industrial, shall we say. But also when you see it in person, it's kind of built on this concrete plinth and they've mixed in the red dust of the um, surrounding soil which is this very deep rust red clay and the legend um, of the area is that the girt worm dragon who used to steal all the sheep was slain and his blood spilled into the soil and it's always protected this part of Somerset but I really think they've pulled it off and it's it's kind of got everything it's got two galleries it's got an education center it's got a restaurant it's got um these lovely light-filled artist studios where kind of sculptors and carpenters and painters can you know rent a space to produce their work but also sell it to people they've got these um four little pods that they're still fitting out that are eventually going to be rented as holiday cottages so it's going to be entirely self-sustaining as a project and i think sometimes these kind of like social culture hubs can be a bit of holier than thou or kind of plop down somewhere and not really use but I've already been back once with friends and family it's it's only been open for two weeks and it's really got a nice buzz to it people are actually turning up.
0: I mean that's an amazing achievement because the dominant narrative in the UK around community centres and public services libraries and so on is that they're all closing that there's not sufficient funding for them and I don't think that's only the UK I think there's a lot of countries experiencing something similar so for the onion collective to have pulled something like this off and to have created this new resource where people can gather where it's a space for that town that's really impressive and it's really heartening actually it's the sort of project where you can only take your hat off to them and what and what they've accomplished because we all know we need more spaces like this And it's only a shame it has to fall to small activist groups like that to put them together. You wish there was more support for that from government, but incredible that they've done it. Well, our final project makes me feel a little bit guilty, because while you've been off looking at interesting community-based architecture, I've been sat at home playing video games. I don't regret it, but I do feel guilty and slightly ashamed. But the game I've been playing recently I think is a really good one for a design and architecture audience, because this game is called Townscaper. It's developed by Oskar Stahlberg, who's a Swedish designer, and it was initially released in 2020 on Mac and PC. But this year it's been coming out on a few more accessible formats, so late in the summer it came out on the Nintendo Switch, and I believe it's out on mobile platforms later this month. And I'm really excited about that because it means that more people will get a chance to play this game, which is essentially a game that casts you as an architect. You're presented with a blank slate of sea, the sort of rolling deep, and then you have to build little towns in the middle of that sea. And it's very simple. If you click on a square, it puts down some pavement. If you click on that pavement again, a little house springs up. And that's kind of all there is to it. But you can build on those houses. So what goes from a sort of higgledy-piggledy seaside village, a bit turn of the 20th century Scandinavian, in all these pastel colours, you can start building them up into huge medieval citadels, or you can create modern towers and sort of streets in the sky with these gantries that run between buildings. And it's all a little bit... um, to Chirico, that kind of vibe to it. So it's quite sort of empty, these towns. But it just gives you this immense creative freedom to start throwing architecture down and deleting bits you don't like and putting things on top of things and it has that sense of play and accessibility to it and I think captures something of the joy of building.
1: I don't think you should ever apologise for loving video games I definitely think they're kind of the future of art and culture as we know it and um, I haven't played it yet you really sold it to me but I love it kind of brings together a lot of that um the best parts from other games but distilled down to its pure form you know I'm a big fan of The Sims I always love playing Age of Empires when you got to kind of build your fortress and have all your little things kind of being built around it. Those are always my favourite parts. And it looks very satisfying in like a tactile way from the trailer that I've watched. There's kind of like these little plop sounds every time you sploosh something down.
0: Yeah, you get a lot of positive reinforcement, which I suppose is part of the design to encourage you to play. It's fun whenever you put something down, you get a nice sound effect. And I think it will... In future, I'd be interested to know how children interact with it because I think it could be a lot of people's introduction to architecture because it's very simple and straightforward. These towns are procedurally generated, so, you know... that There's not that much depth in the controls, but the results you get can be surprisingly deep. So for instance, if you form a ring of houses, in the middle, automatically a little park springs up. And if you sort of build up higher and higher, it starts automatically creating balconies and gantries. So it's very accessible and very immediate. You can create some really beautiful results. You can control the lighting, so you can switch it from day to night and play around with colour. And I think it's that sort of fun, rewarding, pick-up-and-play gaming that offers a really nice take on architecture. And and I hope that a lot of people get to play this because it is worth your time. So our final segment this week is an interview, and I'm excited about this one. Uh, So earlier in the year, I spoke to Kat Debo, who is the director and chief curator of MOMU, the mode museum in Antwerp. It's a museum dedicated to fashion and the sort of cultural value of fashion. And there are surprisingly few of those museums around, actually. If you think about what a huge industry fashion is, there are very few spaces which explore it critically. So Momu has always been a really important place for that world. And the museum has just opened up again after a three-year hiatus to its official building. They had an €8 million renovation of that space to enhance and adapt it to add 800 square metres more gallery space and it was also an opportunity for the team to think about how they're curating fashion and how they want to present that discipline. So I was really delighted to get a chance to sit down with Kat and speak to her a little bit about some of those issues, what MoMA will be doing next and how their approach to curating fashion has changed. I believe we have that interview now. (laughs) We're delighted to be joined on The Crit by Kat Beau, the director and chief curator of MOMU, the fashion museum in Antwerp. How are you? Because I think last week MOMU finally reopened after it had been closed since 2018, right?
2: We had our um, uh, opening last week and then the opening for the, the general public this weekend. It was super intense, but it was amazing to to have people over in in the over in the museum again and to get feedback and and positive response but i 'm super tired
0: <laughs> it's been a huge project um when When did you start discussing this because i mean the museum's been um it, it's been exhibiting but the museum its building itself has been closed for three years now when When did you begin planning this
2: um much earlier so we we um We uh, closed the museum in the spring of 2018, but I think I started... Looking for the funding for the renovation Um, as soon as I I became director. That must have been 2008, 2009. So it took me actually quite a long time. I got the first uh, subventions in 2015. And I remember that at that time I was thinking like, am I the only idiot who still believes that this is going to work? From the moment we we got the budget, it went quite fast. (laughs) Um, And also the, the, the renovation itself, it's almost like three years and a half. It seems like a, a long time, but like specialists tell me that it's actually super short because it was a very complex renovation. And sometimes renovating a building can be more complex than building a new one <laughs> because you discover you know, unforeseen problems along the way. And then, of course, we also had the, the pandemic yeah, that, that also brought, um, brought delays. So I'm super happy that we, we got the deadline of, of September this year.
0: What was the original impetus? What was what were the restrictions about the building that meant that this renovation program was necessary? I mean, I know you've done interesting thinking around the curation of the museum as well in this period, but specifically in terms of that building and the site, what what were the aims? What were you trying to change?
2: Well, we needed to change um, some of the basic infrastructure. The first renovation; so it's a nineteenth-century building, and also with an annex that's from the 70s. And the first renovation was done end of the 90s by um, Ghent-based architect marie jose Van Hey. And she came up with this iconic um, uh, design for the, the wooden um, staircase. She's an amazing architect. Uh, but, she, you know, the, the renovation, as it often happens, was done with uh, quite a small budget. So we, right from the start, we actually faced quite a lot of problems with some of our basic infrastructure. And then I'm talking about electricity and stuff like that. And that's, of course, super annoying. You you need, you know, the the yeah. basic infrastructure like electricity, light, climate control are just essential to, to operate as a museum. And then, of course, I, I we were always a little bit frustrated that we were a museum on top of a store. So on the ground floor, you... I had a fashion boutique, which was not in the original plan. That was only later on that that space was rented to a fashion store. As mm-hmm. you know, the, we are not the only partner in the building. And so you have the fashion department of the Royal Academy. You have Flanders, yeah. the, the offices of Flanders DC, which is an institute that supports and coaches um, designers. But you as well have a restaurant. So when they got out, I uh, uh, we, we could have that space. And that was yeah. ideal um, for a new exhibition space uh, for the presentation of our collection and also a museum cafe and a museum shop. Often I think if you if you build like a new museum building it it can look great on paper and the design can be spectacular but working in a space is still something else. Making exhibitions we really when we we started in 2002 we really got to we we had to get to know the space from an architectural point of view like our exhibition spaces Ceilings are quite low, which is actually not ideal when you work with fashion because you work with mannequins and if you put them on a plinth, you don't want the the ceiling visually to to fall on their head. And I took all these things into account with with the renovation. So we decided to make our exhibition spaces into black boxes because when you paint it black, the space feels bigger and the ceiling disappears and and it doesn't feel that the ceiling is quite low. So things like that. And and, um, you can only do that, I think, when you really know the the building. I think I spent more time in that building than in my own house.
0: (laughs) Previously, Momu has sort of specialised in these temporary exhibitions, which have been wonderful. But the museum actually has a really extensive collection. I think it's 35,000 plus pieces And for the first time, that's taking centre stage somewhat. I mean, looking through some of the designers who are represented in that, I mean, it's Dries van Noten, it's Margella, Raf Simmons, Ander Mollermister. It's an amazing resource, I think, for anyone who's interested in fashion. Could you tell me a little bit about your thinking around that display? And when you have so many pieces, how do you make an initial selection of what you're going to display? How do you start curating a resource like that?
2: Well, we the, the, the exhibition space we have is actually not huge. Eh? So we on the first floor for our temporary exhibitions, we have a space of 1,000 square meters, but the new exhibition space is about 350 to 400 square meters. And we, have of course, are spoiled there. Eh? We have a lot of talent in Belgium, so we have a lot of designers we wanted to display. So I think quite early on, we decided that we didn't want to make a chronological presentation we decided to have a thematical approach so the the exhibition design is actually a kind of island within the space with like large display case actually not display cases are rooms that are uh, with glass that disappears in in the floor and glass of course offers you the opportunity to, to present more garments on the first floor in a temporary uh, exhibition space we work uh, mainly with open display also because i feel that open display for fashion it gives a different feeling it it gives um, less of maybe less of a static feeling but for the collection display we thought display behind glass would would work best we also use the glass to project on so we have like small projections with extra information that can be catwalk shows or can be archival material because the idea was also not only to present objects and looks but also to present material from our archives and library. We also have a, like, a, a super interesting library. We also start the display with a short documentary film that we made on Belgian fashion, the Belgian fashion with a question mark. So we start actually yeah. with the first generation of designers that that became successful on an international level <clears throat> and that are the Jentwep6, um, yeah, of course. Yeah. And then we present the second and third generations. But we also tell the story of how because of of well you know globalization the 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 belgian fashion also globalized and that it today has less to do with a sort of national identity and where you were born or raised but less with the kind of creative art artistic sensibility that people get when they stay in in Antwerp or are trained here, but take with them when they leave Belgium again. Because there's actually in the past 30 years, we've seen like a kind of creative diaspora and and I thought that was very relevant and important also to note because I feel that identities in fashion today are very, very layered and, and they're constantly shifting. So it's for me less relevant to claim a designer as being French or Italian or Belgian. If I look at Belgian fashion, I often give the example of Demna Vasalia. He studied in Antwerp. He, he graduated at the fashion department in Antwerp. And he still refers a lot to Antwerp in his in his work. Um, um for example when, when for his Vatmont collections he often referred to to Antwerp. But he in the meantime he left Antwerp. He um he started his, his own brand Vatmont in Paris. Then he became a designer um, for Balenciaga, uh, one of the biggest luxury houses, uh, you know, part of a bigger uh, French luxury concern, but actually a house with uh, Basque-Spanish roots. And he lives now today in in, uh, Switzerland, Demna and he's born in georgia so what is he um and i think it's it's just these these different layers in his identity that makes make him so special and interesting so we should not try to to limit that identity to being belgian or georgian or french and then the actual um uh, presentation the actual themes are all themes that we thought sort of eh, because then you can ask the question what is then belgian fashion how are for example the the Antwerp 6 what makes them, you know, um, linked to each other uh, is that in a creative way, in another way. Um, and actually, if you look at their work um, from a creative point of view, they're all very, very different. What links them is that their work in a conceptual way. They, they have a very specific way of storytelling. And we try to, to come up with certain themes like, for example... Surrealism. You see a lot of designers, Belgian designers that have this law for, for surrealism or surreal elements or the use of very um, you know, unexpected materials.
0: Looking through the program of what Momo is actually showing, there's a huge variety there which I think is so exciting. So there's an exhibition emotion, fashion in transition. Then opening later in the month, you have places, which which sounds like a deep historical study into the history of lace in Antwerp. And I think that's quite exciting that as a discipline, fashion can encompass all of those things, you know, material history, cultural history, emotion, identity, and also this kind of community engagement. Can Can you talk to us a little bit about this this early programming for the new mobile and how and how you've put that together.
2: Yeah, when when last week when I looked back on it, I really thought, oh, uh, what 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 did you get in your mind, <laughs> thinking we could all do it because we did it with like quite a small team, and it's actually indeed a lot. But I think quite early on we decided that we wanted to reopen the museum with an exhibition that uh, looks at the state of fashion today, uh, fashion as an industry. Uh, and I thought that was relevant, was also necessary to do as a, as a museum. Because and that was that was before the pandemic that we decided that. Because sometimes I I do have a lot of hate relationship with with fashion. It's um it's an amazing industry. I I I have the privilege of working with amazing um, um creatives. But at the same time, as an industry, it also has like these very ugly sides. It's it's, it's you know we we all know that we're facing. An ecological crisis, and and fashion has a huge impact there. Also, you know, discussions about inclusion are are difficult in 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 fashion, and also I think the past years within my network, I I heard a lot of people complaining, um, being sort of nostalgic for you know the early days, you know the nineties, the eighties, as if fashion was more creative, of more more special or more emotional or more Uh, and I thought why why is everybody why why seems everybody you know everybody's complaining and also complaining about the rhythm that it goes too fast and that they have to travel all the time and from one fashion week to another and that they're exhausted so I thought okay let's let's do an exhibition to start a a conversation also because of course as a museum we don't have the answer what we answer to what we can do is is offer historical context. So we decided to focus on the past three decades, from early 90s up to today, because these, this is, these are the three decades of, of the, of the global, globalization, like globalization really uh, kicked off um, uh, early 90s. And it's also the time where Belgian fashion became successful on an international level. And the idea is that I hope, I really hope (laughs) that if people visit the exhibition, that they ask themselves questions and start up a conversation and a dialogue about fashion. We came up with the title Emotion, which is a wordplay on emotion and motion during the pandemic. Because then at that time, we really felt like overnight designers had to, to present their collections in a digital way. There were no, no, more, no more fashion weeks and you really felt that designers were also struggling and this idea of, of is emotion possible in, in sort of a digital world and what does emotion mean in a highly commercial fashion industry the exhibition on lace places the the starting point there was actually the research that was conducted by one of our collections curators who was about to retire and she was she's like a, an international lace specialist and knowing that she was going to retire i said okay let's we're going to dedicate an exhibition to it because when you 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 link an exhibition to research you can you can uh, dedicate more time and more means a lot of people were telling me, like, why? Why are you opening with lace? It's a bit old-fashioned. Nobody's interested in it anymore. And when I get responses like that, it even motivates me more because it's true. Eh? Lace is is very out of fashion. Actually, if you look sure. at museums, we've loaned with different museums, and you see that most of the the, 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 the um, staff specialized in lace has over the years left the museum, often they have retired. So you really feel that museums are losing um, some expertise. Um, And I really wanted to prevent that, to have the research also in a book and in an exhibition. And what we focus on in the exhibition is really the the origins of lace. Lace came into being as a new luxury product in the beginning of the 16th century was like a highly technological um, uh, innovation, it soon evolved in like a very lucrative business in an international um, trade and we wanted to link it to contemporary fashion creations that also use technological processes like three uh, d printing rapid prototyping or or laser cutting and that work along the same concepts as historical lace, transparency, right. negative versus positive. And then I, I thought, okay, let's let's do it in Momu, but also in, in four different venues in Antwerp that, that all have a historical link to lace trade or lace production.
0: And there are so many resonances and technologies like that connect to so many interesting topics but persuading a general audience that they're going to be interested to come and see the show. I imagine that's difficult. And I think that's something which all museums struggle with because I know when the V&A did its plywood exhibition recently, that was a brilliant exhibition. It's one of my favourite things they've done. And once you're in there, it's fascinating. But trying to persuade a general audience, like, you know, maybe family with children, that, oh yeah, you should go and learn about the plywood show. That <laughs> that's quite tricky.
2: That uh, I think, as a museum, you you have to look for sub stories that are also interesting or relevant for a contemporary audience. And one of the sub stories we are telling with this exhibition is the role that women and girls played in in the lace production and lace trade. And it's some, it's it's up to now like a story that's been a bit overlooked. A part of the exhibition at the Plantin-Moretus Museum, which is actually the family house of the world renowned printing family. Everybody knows the museum because of the printing business, which was like uh, world famous. But almost nobody knows that the daughters of, of Christophe Plantain had a lace business. And they started the lace business at a very early age. They were, were 12 to 13 years old. They did their own um, uh, bookkeeping, accountancy, and it was actually a very lucrative business. So you know, it's it's not that the girls were only knitting and 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 making lace at home. You know, being married to their husband. No, some of these girls really had, uh, or women, had powerful positions like that. So we thought that was also relevant to 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 tell that story. Um, today and then of 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 course the the story of, of international trade of innovation and then you just have to make sure that the 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 exhibition design is appealing that it's it's and that is something that we as a museum I think specialize in a, a little bit to to I always want exhibitions also to be visually appealing because fashion is not made for the museum um, it's not made to be displayed in a museum so I feel that it always needs A context.
0: It's such an interesting point because I know over this period from watching you speak about the museum you've thought quite a lot about the curation and ways in which museums have changed I think all museums the past few years have become aware that they need to be more than the sites where you go for the mute appreciation of historical objects they need to do more to draw people in to sort of interact with societies And I think that's particularly interesting in the case of fashion, because as you said there, famously, fashion is difficult to display because it's designed for the body, really, to see these pieces. It's all about seeing them on the body and how they move. It's difficult when they're only on a mannequin. What ways are there to make fashion curation more engaging, reaching out to its audience more and doing all of those things which we, we expect museums to be able to do now.
2: But I think that there are many, many different ways to, to, to curate fashion and to display fashion. And I think I feel that museums sometimes are a bit lazy. But what interests me is really how to find new ways. And I think we've been experimenting with it in the past. If I think, for example, about our Yoji Yamamoto exhibition where people could actually try on uh, some of the garments it was called um, dream shop it was like a, a, a yeah a dream shop a fake a fake store where staff was helping you trying on garments in order to 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 have people experience some of the basic design concepts of Yamamoto like for example uh, working with you know oversized garments you can you can explain it in a wall text but i think you only really understand it when you, when you try on a garment and you see that on your body it is different than on, a, on, on someone else's body but it can be as beautiful or a concept like Ma which is the, the, the air between the garment and, and the body and how that really um, it's part of the, of the design. Um, that was quite a bold experiment and it was only possible because we could work with the archive of Yamamoto and because he himself insisted. Uh, because, of course, with museum objects, you cannot try them on. You cannot even touch them as as a as a visitor. With our Margiela Hermes exhibition, for example, I really wanted to uh, show how he designed um, collections for women, many different women of different ages. And you can, again, explain it in a wall text. But then I, I would say, like, yeah, whatever, you know, designing a collection for a 20-year-old and a 60-year-old. You only believe it when you see it, I think, and you cannot do that on a mannequin because mannequins are ageless. So we, we, with the approval of the Hermès archive, we made some videos that were choreographed by, by Martin himself. We had former uh, models of Martin for Hermès who now, of course, are like 10, 10 to 15 years older. So I think the youngest was almost 40 and the oldest was almost 70. And then you really felt like, yes, okay, these garments fit for a 30-year-old, but also for a 70-year-old, which is quite exceptional. For the emotion exhibition, we started brainstorming, and then we came up with the idea, why not have a person in the exhibition, in a display case, the very first installation, the entire time. And it's actually, it's working so well. We, We did an open call. So we had a lot of different people, different ages, different ethnicities, different gender. And every two hours, someone else is in that display case. There's halfway, there's a a transparent mirror. So you see, you look at that person, that person looks back at you. And it's it's really powerful. It's really, uh, people are a bit shocked when they come in, but it sets the tone for the entire exhibition. One thing that struck me when
0: I was thinking about MoMU reopening is how nice it is to have an institution which is dedicated to the sort of critical appraisal of fashion and understanding fashion and opening it up to different audiences of people who can come in. Because, you know, for a a billion dollar industry, for a design discipline, which is so important in so many ways, commercially, artistically, as we talked about earlier, there are stories in fashion of Migration, national identity uh material supply change in the environment there aren't so many institutions that actually provide an opportunity to look into that and I think that's such a shame and i mean this is this is true of lots of design disciplines, but fashion in particular with with a couple of notable exceptions. Where do you go if you want to explore it there aren't that there just isn't enough out there and so it's lovely to have Momu back, which is one of the places doing this
2: i think the 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 lovely thing about Momu is, is that we we're we are a museum on a human scale eh? I'm not a museum in London or paris or new york uh we get the biggest part of our funding comes through subventions. so i'm I'm actually very independent. I have a total independency when it comes to the the, uh, the creative direction. And to me, that's that's holy. And of course, I, I also have a commercial spirit in the sense that I need to bring income. Uh, I need to also, um, uh, you know, have income through ticket sales, through merchandise, to sponsoring in order to, to fund the museum. But it should not be at the cost of the message we bring. And I think, especially also during the pandemic, I'm more and more convinced that that museums really have to rethink who they're talking to and what messages they bring. If you don't think about that, I think museums will lose their relevance. I don't want to work just for a white, middle class, 50 plus audience. The question is how to get young kids in, how to get different communities in. And I strongly believe that the the most important skill for museums of the future is empathy, is really how to be empathic with your audience and with the different communities. Antwerp is a super diverse uh, city. It's one of the it's a small city, but it's one of the most diverse cities in the world. And I know that we today we're not reaching our communities, so we just have to work harder to also bring a message. There's nothing wrong with some activism, I think, in museums. And of course, you. You have this certain neutrality, but neutrality or objectivity in, you know, building collections and and making a programme, it's not possible. It's time also to bring a message.
0: Kat, thank you so much for joining us on The Crit and best of luck with the museum reopening.
1: quite a fashionable episode um, this time around we've had cat just speaking there about her work we've had the uh, trendy eames shoes we've had the simpsons on the catwalk
0: we have it's just the way it happens sometimes sometimes fashion giveth a lot but in the interim before we're back in november with a new episode you can keep up to date with us on at the crit podcast on instagram at the crit design on twitter or send us an email. We're on the crit at Hope you enjoy the rest of October. I hope it's pleasantly spooky, but in an enjoyable way, not in a not not in an actually scary or unpleasant way, just in a sort of oh, I liked that skeleton. That was good.
1: But if you have a ghost story, then please do send it in to us, because I would like to read them.
0: We'll see you next month. <laughs>
1: Been hosted by me, India Block, and Ollie Stratford. The podcast is produced and edited by Abby Hall.